You're listening to Beyond the Jargon, a jargon-free look at graduate students and their research here at the University of Victoria. Welcome to a very special episode of Beyond the Jargon. What Colleen and I are going to do this week and next week is lead you in, hopefully in a nice way, to the fun drive that's coming up in the middle of March for CFUV. So, my name's Mario, as uh, some of you may know, and uh, with me is Colleen today. Hi, Colleen. Hey, Mario. I'm excited to be here with you today. Yes, and so... It should be kind of fun. Yeah, I think we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about our own research, and mm-hmm. hopefully we can do that in a half an hour and a half an hour, respectively. And oh, then yeah, we'll great. have two fun little shows that'll lead us into our live show on the 18th? Yes, March, March 18th. 18th. <laughs> It'll be a Monday at yeah. 1 o'clock, 1 to one thirty. So tune in for that and enjoy us live. I will say um a lot more than you yes, hear me say No on editing the on this one, yeah, no pre-recording. And, <laughs> and uh, at times our, our levels may go really far off the grid, so we'll see. <laughs> but I don't think we'll have trouble getting an hour show out of the two of us talking. Anything no, editing uh, down will be the... <laughs> I'm not really worried about it. So let's start right, right in then so that we don't... It, let's not waste any time. No time wasting yeah, today. So, so we're going to talk about your project first. So for those of you who don't already know, Colleen is a PhD student working in theater and drama for the young. It's interesting because I'm kind of this hybrid. Mm-hmm. My master's is in theater and drama for the young. That's and right. I got that from Eastern Michigan University. But when I came to do the PhD, when working with theater in a school system, it crosses over into education. And every place I contacted, there were like five universities and that really did work with theater and drama for the young, but it always went over into curriculum and instruction. It was mm-hmm. not in the theater department. So I find myself doing a PhD actually in curriculum and instruction under the faculty of ed, mm-hmm. education, as opposed to theater. So I'm a little bit of a hybrid there. And I just passed my candidacy exam, Woo. which is I've I, I, you take the two years worth of courses, then you prepare for an exam, which mine was two written questions. I had seven days to answer each one. They had to be 20 to 25 pages long. After that, if you pass that portion, you move to the oral defense of that. Mm. And so I passed all that in December. And so now apparently I'm an official PhD candidate. So I'm learning all this. I didn't know how all the process worked when I first started. It kind of came in ignorance was bliss kind of thing. (laughs) A lot of fun title changes throughout the process. Yes. So now here I am, and I've just submitted my proposal for research. So we'll see how that goes. Mm -hmm. It's really kind of interesting how it morphed from I came in with the idea. The people at Eastern Michigan loved my master's thesis project, which was coming up with an improvisational program to take into schools that have the social gaps because there's multiple languages in the school, not necessarily multilingual children, but multiple languages and kids were grouping in those languages. There's no mixing in socially because they don't speak each other's language well. So my idea was to get this program where it's mixing everybody So when you say improvisational, do you mean that the program is something that is improvised as they go through, or are the kids improvising? It is improvisation exercises. Okay. They're theatrical games. There's a lot of people that have developed them, in particular Viola Spolin, and hers was mainly for theater. Then you have Michael Rode, and he does a lot with conflict resolution and getting groups to work together in the community that are see lots of different perspectives. And there's all these really cool theatrical improvisational games that you can play. They're short. The key to improvisation in the theater is that it has very distinct limits on each type of exercise. And it's actually through those limits that our creativity just expands, goes through the roof. Most people think, oh, you know, 
for creativity, we should have no rules, total freedom, and it doesn't work that way. If you have too many limits, then you clamp down on creativity. So a lot of the improvisation exercises are based on one of the limits will be time, and you keep it short. But when I was dealing with the multiple languages, I took out language. I did a lot of nonverbal exercises or exercises where you just use gibberish, and you had to still communicate. So once you remove the language barrier, all of a sudden now you have people communicating in ways they didn't really know they could. And it's through embodied. It taps into the multiple intelligences, which is why I love theater. You've got all the different ways that we can learn and communicate that we don't think about because we tend to rely solely on the intellect and then our verbal way to communicate. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so it's totally fascinating. I love it. Anyway, so that got the attention of my professors at Eastern, and they're like, you know, you should really go for a PhD. And I'm like, really? I'd never thought of that. And they recommended a couple of places. And because theater and drama for the young is only offered at a few universities around the world. So it's a very tight-knit community internationally. And one of the people that they recommended was Carol Miller. And she is from University of Victoria. Actually, she just retired the year I was coming in. Mm. But it was because of her that I came here. Matter of fact, I remember writing her thinking, oh, I hope that I could maybe hear in a couple of months from her because I know this is one very amazing, busy woman. She emailed me within an hour and, I, you know, she knows the people. I use the references for my school. And the mm-hmm. next thing you know, I'm here. I got a fellowship. I'm over across the country, actually across the continent in another country in faculty of ed. And so what ended up happening with that was I felt a little out of place because I was used to being in theater. And I do curriculum, but outside of the regular K through 12 concept. So I don't have a teaching certificate. Mm-hmm. But in actuality, it's ended up being the best path because I've tweaked what I'm researching. I'm not just studying like the type of improvisation program I came up with. It hit me that what I really do is I've always done private classes on stage presence and confidence. And I bring in musical theater and puppetry and improvisation and all of these things that I've loved and learned from and my public speaking background through Toastmasters and communication major, etc. that I use the theatrical techniques to not necessarily put on the perfect performance and train somebody to be an actor or a professional singer, But I use it to have people learn how to face that uncertainty, the risk, the scariness, the vulnerability of being human. And that's when all of a sudden someone sent me a link to Dr. Brené Brown's TED Talk video on her research on shame and vulnerability. She's out of the University of Houston. And her, oh, you have to get on to the TED Talk website and put her name in. TED is nerd heaven in general. Oh, it's amazing. And you have to listen to her. And she's talking about all this research she's done on shame and vulnerability. She said when she first brings it up, everybody's like, oh, my gosh, I don't want to talk about it. That's scary. We want to avoid it. And what she's learned is it's the opposite of that. It's kind of gotten this bad rap that it's all about the negative. It's all about the victim side of vulnerability. But her work has brought forth that vulnerability is for every human, and it's the way to get to joy for growth, for maturity, to learn to navigate that vulnerability, not avoid it, not talk about it. 
So it clicked. I'm like, that's what I've always done with theater. So I started shifting how I was going to do my research. And I started thinking, well, look what hits the newspapers all the time now about schools. That, matter of fact, today and the Times colonists here on the island, there is a picture of kids in pink for the support of the anti-bullying campaign. And so my thought was vulnerability as a strength, training, maybe helping children practice how to get through these vulnerable situations, how to stand up for yourself a little bit more, how to even do a book report in a class. I think of all the times how I was scared to do it, and I had exposure to theater. Can you imagine someone who has had no exposure They're asked for the first time, they're like 11, to stand Mm -hmm. in front of a class and not only be articulate and show, oh my gosh, I read this and I hope I got the right concept, but they're standing in front of a class for the first time. So it was kind of this idea that all of these things meshed and I said, all right, shifting my focus a little bit and I want to look at expanding the boundaries of what we would teach in school, have vulnerability be something that we consider as curricular like as something that we don't avoid and don't wait to just be reactive with, but in a proactive for the every student, not the vulnerable populations, not the the more vulnerable traumatic ordeals, and not going so far as into therapy, drama therapy, and healing a specific wound or specific crisis, but the everyday types of vulnerability that leads to strength. And I thought, well, gosh, if we were to actually think of that in a school system manner and be conscious of that, how would that change what we expose children to in the school? And then I thought, well, you wouldn't even have to invent a way to do it. Because in my opinion, having experienced in being in a theatrical performance, a theatrical production of some sort, provides so many of the techniques, the actual ability to practice facing the uncertainty. So I started putting this little idea out there of practicing vulnerability. Makes people cringe at first because it sounds like, oh, that that's a bad thing. But mm-hmm. it's shifting the definition of vulnerability to a strength. To once you do that, you see theater and drama for the young in a in a very different way. Even though there's so many studies out there that say it promotes empathy and confidence and all of these things, it's just nobody uses the word vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's already there. Now I'm trying to just connect it. So mine's more putting it out there. What happens if you consider this? And so that's what I'm working on. And I find it really intriguing. I just think that as our societies change, so the schools need to reflect that. And I think school systems are amazing. I know people can find something wrong with schools and maybe we're over-testing and always something you could say is wrong. But in general, in my opinion, mass education is a new phenomenon in humankind. And I think we're doing pretty good considering how it's only been here a really short amount of time. And I think most people are really doing the best they can to prepare the young in the best way they know how to survive. And now I just think we're entering a totally different age. Communication is so fast. Information is so available in ways that we never had before. I think it's actually because of the really fast communication that we're running into situations like bullying and whatever are more exacerbated because everything happens much more quickly. And publicly. And publicly. You can't retrieve it. And so Mm -hmm. that's where I'm... Yeah, it's a... It's a a very interesting time and one in which I think educational paradigms, similar to what you're talking about, are 
becoming more and more necessary because the, the definition of what it means to be a person is is changing quite a lot. Yeah. And, and the definition of a, a fully functioning person is very, mm-hmm. very different from what it was 50 years ago. Right. I personally think about it all the time, so I, I know what you're talking about. I, I, you know, I think a lot about how just how things were sort of put together. I guess I think about it genera- generationally. So I look at the way my parents were raised and the way they are, and then I yes. think about the way they've raised me and what I've become. And the times are – it sounds sort of cliche. All of this feels cliche to me as I say it out loud. But what they've what they've gone through and what they had going on uh, when they were my age was so, so, so different. Yes. And the way that society was shaped around them was so, so different. And even mm-hmm. more so for my grandparents, obviously. And so I think the definition of what it means to be, I don't know, I, I'm having trouble. I'm trying to come at it from a, the most general place I can. But right. the way I think about it a lot is I think constantly about the, de- the modern definition of masculinity and what it means to be a dude yes. in North America right now. And right. I think it's totally different from what it ever has been before. And I think that plays really well into what you're talking about. I think that right. vulnerability is a major part of being a man these days and it's something and and a person in general and I, I can't speak from women's perspective obviously right. but I think it's really important well and there you know it's so amazing too as I've been doing this I, I've been finding these like a resource I just think everybody should read Stephen Nachmanovich's book free play he's amazing he's a master violinist and he's also a master improvisation instructor in his book free play he talks about the different way to to look at your life and creativity and he brings up vulnerability and actually it was so interesting this book is from 1990 and it says the way to strength is through vulnerability and now you have this work coming out with Brené Brown a doctor in social work talking about we need to look at how we've limited the definition of vulnerability if you look it up in the dictionary it actually makes it it's something you want to avoid it talks about someone who can be hurt mm-hmm. Instead of looking at just uncertainty and risk in her research, there just there are so many connections to the performing arts and theater. And then, of course, Viola Spolin's work, her stuff is amazing and about working with children and theater and all about taking the risks. With that, though, I'm not saying it's just some, okay, we just put kids into a risky situation. It would mean if you're approaching the schools that way, we also have to be really conscious of... Well, what are the safety parameters? Now, people who do improvisation really well, especially for children, they're utterly conscious of safety. So it seems almost like a contradiction because they're saying, well, we're supposed to be doing things that are uncertain. But it's allowing someone to experience something, to step outside their boundaries. And the reason that they're willing to do that is because I, as a facilitator, have told them that their safety is utmost important to me. And that's freedom from fear, freedom from ridicule, freedom from harm. And so I make sure that I'm setting up the situation in a way where I'm not just going to let them be emotionally stripped down in front of people. And they don't, no one ever has to participate in anything. And there's, that's always the out. And that the games are organized in such a way where you have really low risk activities at first, like simple little icebreakers You would never jump into some of these more risky, especially where it would involve playing a role that's improvised and you're speaking and you're interacting with others. That's a really high risk thing to do and in in front of a group. So most of the stuff I do is always lots of people in small little groups working at the same time so nobody feels soloed out, right? 
it just changes who we even think as an educator. Because in my opinion, then, if, if we were to view being involved in a theatrical performance, let's say an actual musical production, there are so many things that you can be involved in. And that's backstage. You could be the spotlight. You could be on stage. It's not about being the actor, the professional actor only. But if we were to be really conscious of this is a place where they could learn, they could have that risk. Here's the interesting thing about theater. What most people don't realize is that people in theater are amazing at dealing with things going, quote, wrong because the show must go on. Mm -hmm. And they're quick problem solvers because it has to go on and it has to be timed. It's almost like the rehearsals practice to navigate vulnerability, right? We're practicing for what happens when the set falls through the curtain and you're in front of the curtain doing a love scene in a play and you still have to go on, the show must go on. And do you just panic, drop all lines, apologize? Or are you prepared for the fact that anything can happen and you have enough confidence, you've had enough practice that mm -hmm. it can go on kind of thing? Yeah. Preparing in that way is then the director, the choreographer, the tech supervisor, whoever is involved, whatever adult is involved, in my opinion, is now viewed as an educator. And you wouldn't be just doing now a show to put on a show and sell, sell out the house. It would be part of the aspect of the show would be making sure we've addressed the issues of vulnerability and might be through reflection or whatever. One of the greatest things about the theatrical production is that there's nobody that's going to run out on stage and save them from some situation that goes wrong on stage. And that's where it goes back to what you were talking about and what Brené Brown is talking about. This, The problem with the way we view vulnerability is she has found now, after 12 years of research, that it's the parents and the adults that have a problem with watching the children go through vulnerability because mm. they want to protect them. The interesting paradox, in a way, is that to become stronger, you need to deal with the adversity yourself. Mm -hmm. it, it's not to have someone else come in and do it for you. Because that makes you avoid vulnerability even sure. more. And so my opinion is if you can run into that while you're doing something in the bounds of the theatrical building, let's say, and you can have all that experience and it's really not going to impact the survival of your life. But if you've built up your ability to be able to handle certain things and know that you have the ability to survive that in that, in that little instance and you've practiced that, would that not be transferable to the bigger issues that you, the everyday issues that you run into outside? It might not solve every problem, but certainly you go out into the world with more confidence that you mm -hmm. have the ability to navigate it at least right. better than having been completely sheltered from it and mm -hmm. protected from it. Ooh, adversity. Okay. We don't want you to experience that. Sure. You know, it's just like in sport or whatever. It makes you stronger outside of right. the arena if handled well, because Absolutely. there's abuses to it as well. I mean, I've had, there are plenty of situations where I've been in where I've seen what not to do mm -hmm. as a director. It's not saying that this is like this, oh, rosy answer. It mm -hmm. would have to be to raise the consciousness level when children are involved. Sure. It's where, what I'm after. The idea then is that when, when a child is finished with this, like in, in your ultimate recommendation, right, would it be that you come into a school, let's say, once and run 
a day of sessions with these kids and then that's what they need? Or is it something that we should be doing constantly throughout? I'm just trying to create a dialogue on it right mm-hmm. now and because it's not being talked about so as much. So that's sort of a future type of question. But I'm, think- I'm actually seeing it as that we already have an answer, mm. like that it would be where theatrical performance or an actual production is one way sure. to have that and to – it would kind of reconceptualize how we view performing like in a musical or a puppetry show or whatever, some sort of performance for children. And mm-hmm. that to not think of it as it's only for the people who want to go into theater or professional musician or whatever, mm-hmm. for the everyday student to experience that, that maybe that would be considered a curricular need as okay. a way to address. So when I was a kid, every year through elementary school, that would be... In Canadian terms, grade one through five. Okay. Every year, every grade would get together and they would all put on some variety of show. And so when you were in fifth grade, it was a large-scale play. We did The Wizard of Oz and uh, the classes before us did different ones. And yes. so, But then in the, in the years before, you were still doing things. So it was I – mean, there were shows written for kids to perform and they all had songs. They all had large chorus songs. There was a solo here and there, rarely maybe, but because – I mean, there aren't a whole lot of... How old are you in first grade? Six? Yeah, six or seven, yeah. Uh, there aren't a whole lot of six-year-olds who can carry a solo by themselves, right? right? So there aren't all the Well, there isn't an, an, even a need to, really. Yeah, yeah, but there's always, like, everybody will have a line here or there, right? So yeah. we'll be in the middle of a song. I remember just vividly from first grade, we had a song about Ollie the Octopus, <laughs> and it was a lot of fun, and I, I don't remember what my line was anymore, but I know once I stepped out and I got to go, blah, blah, and... Is that the kind of thing you're talking about, like growing that through? Yeah. and Would that be an example of the way it should be? Well, it's an example of what is there, but reconceptualizing why it would be important. Like there are a lot of studies out there about showing that experiences like that increase self-confidence, empathy, trust, all these things that come out of it. But it's not using the word vulnerability vulnerability necessarily. And so if we could see it in that way take that same experience and if we approached it from the idea that that's part of it it would be more than just making sure everybody can say their lines in Mm -hmm. my opinion it would kind of change how we look at it and how we involve the students and how we talk about it with the students Mm -hmm. right and and this is what i envision and there's a lot of people out there doing drama in schools that are doing this really well really consciously of creating a nice safe environment but If we were to change how like a school system thought of approaching vulnerability Mm -hmm. from a curricular standpoint, wouldn't that impact how we – the importance we view on going through that? And maybe it would involve things like reflection activities and Mm -hmm. talks of things in different ways instead of just the idea of – Let's just find who's, you know, the best singer and can do the solo and and value it in a different way. Mm -hmm. And that would be addressing vulnerability publicly. It wouldn't be, it would be like officially acknowledging it in the school system dialogue. I'm kind of putting this, doing this research that's kind of expanding, playing with the meta narratives, the big grand narratives around curriculum, around vulnerability and theater and drama for the young. Mm -hmm. There already is a link, and maybe it's an an evolution of vocabulary and then just a tweak to the system of what we're handling in schools. Sure. An explanation of of 
why you feel the way you feel when you go up on a stage, right? You're nervous. And the, yes. the reason is because you're vulnerable in that yes. moment. And so if a, a younger child can make that connection, you're saying, yeah. then that leads to really great growth emotionally. Yes. And if the adults involved were conscious of that mm -hmm. while they're working on it, and I'm not talking about the amazing theater artists out there already conscious of safety and whatever. I'm talking about all the adults involved and having that be one of the priorities of the experience mm -hmm. instead of just some sort of, you know, nice little after effect. Sure. But actually have that be, if your consciousness level was raised, going into it and having that be one of the top priorities, it would shift how each experience is facilitated. Mm -hmm. And like I've had parents in my, the kids that take my stage presence classes, which is a class I just invented where it's building self-esteem and confidence by having them do a musical, like a Broadway musical number with really difficult choreography, singing, acting all at the same time. Instead of a lot of times in the younger, when people are kids, they'll, they'll have them do one at a time or they'll do simple clapping and whatever. And this one is where they can't do it the first day. They can't even probably do it the second day. And I always get to the point where I say, ooh, did I make it too hard? But what they do, because it's a challenge, and I'm never doing anything so hard that it will physically harm them, it's a challenge. They rise to it, and they are so elated because at, by the end, not only are they doing it well, they're usually doing it too fast. I have to slow them down because it was something they couldn't do at first. And a lot of times what I see is that if it can't be done well on the first day, then it's, okay, let's make it simpler so that they can get it. And then you're just re practicing simple things and you get bored and disconnected. But the practicing of something that was difficult, but yet I knew in the way I approached them was, but I know that you'll be able to do this, builds their confidence. And I had a parent say to me, I don't know what it is that you do. And it was just a simple little after-school thing. I only met five times. And she says, but my child just talks about your class more than any other class. And I said, well, I'm not any miracle worker. I'm not doing any big grand thing. But the kids were just shining. They would just be beaming. I didn't have the language at the time for this, but I was really showing them how to navigate that vulnerable situation mm -hmm. of being presented with something that you maybe can't do, and then you think, okay, make it easier because I can't do it. And then someone's saying, well, I think you can. I think you, you have the strength inside of you. And that's just one simple little example of mm -hmm. it. It feels to me like it would also lead to really great fostering of relationships between people yes. also. Because just from a psychology standpoint, when the more you break things down in front of somebody, the deeper your connection feels. It's yes. Just, it's, it's almost a an immediate reaction, but it's, but I imagine in your first example of the two kids, the two groups of kids who spoke different languages, yes. they probably started to forge friendships between those groups. Yes. And so that I think leads to a whole nother possibility right. of implications and uses of, of this kind of a method of, of teaching. Well, and that's what's come out of what Brené Brown's research is absolutely about. Once you start to see vulnerability as strength, you see that we live for connection. That's what we do as humans. Mm -hmm. We live for that. And that's when it started to dawn on me. When you start to read theater and drama literature, especially, you know, read something from Viola Spolin, it's all about the connection. And this is why I'm thinking there are lots of things that can deal with vulnerability. I just happen to be thinking I know the theater arts would be a great venue. It's definitely known as the most social of the art forms. 
So if in schools, I'm talking about dealing with vulnerability and connection, you're talking in the social aspect. So it isn't just solely about the wonderful things that you can do through writing and painting and all these things. But I'm talking about if we wanted to start to address the social aspect, we don't even need to invent a way to address it. I mean, you could certainly do other ways, but we've already got one great way if we just looked at it slightly differently. That's all I'm trying to throw out there, these possibilities. Mm -hmm. And and again, when I say practicing vulnerability, that's a concept that I don't even really know as a concept. Some people, they just get eh, cringe at it, but Mm -hmm. that's what I'm investigating. What would happen if you were able to see through this lens of practicing vulnerability, look back on the stories in your life and what comes to mind through that lens. So I'm in definitely the exploration stage. Mm-hmm. So I'm doing like a narrative, getting people's stories. I'm all about the stories. Once I have that, I would see what comes out of that. And if there is merit in going further in this, I would go somewhere into like a grounded theory where I'm actually trying to make a theory about right. it as opposed to just now I'm in total exploration mm-hmm. stage. But this whole subject, like you said, of vulnerability and connection absolutely overlaps with psychology, sure. which brings us to you. Thanks for listening to the Colleen Mario Combo interview, part one. Join us next week for part two here on Beyond the Jargon on CFUV.